listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This morning's scripture lessons is Psalm 82. If you'd like to follow along the Bibles, it's page 472. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk in the darkness and the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Thanks, Dick. Good morning again, everyone. So I feel like I should probably address the title of this sermon right up front, because um, personally, if I walked into a church and the sermon title was the good news about judgment, I'd probably leave. Um, <clears throat> you're all still here, though, which I think is a good thing. Um, but that also tells me that you know me, and you know how much I like ironic sermon titles. So uh, We've been in this uh, teaching series since Easter, Exploring Hope. We've looked at themes like resurrection and new creation, um, this good news of a God who loves the world, gave his life for the world, and is in the process of redeeming the world, making all things new. But if you've been around the church for a while, you probably notice there's also a dark side to the Christian hope. We've been looking at a lot of these beautiful, hope-filled passages together these last few weeks But many of these same passages have a shadow side. The Bible's proclamations of hope and new creation are often paired with visions of fear, condemnation, dread. There seems to be an exclusion paired with the embrace. Take the passage we looked at last week as an example. Uh, Last week we looked at Revelation 21. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It's this beautiful vision of a new heaven and a new earth coming together, of God coming down from heaven to dwell among the people. And as amazing and beautiful and hopeful as all that is, there's some really dark stuff in this passage. Here's a portion we read last week, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6. It'll be on the screen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, behold, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. 
And the one who was seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Beautiful, right? Amazing stuff. So hopeful. But then it keeps going. Verse 7. Those who conquer will inherit these things. Hold on a minute. Those who conquer? The pacifist in me doesn't really like the sound of that very much at all. I will be their God and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I think we can say that's a little harsh, right? Like, just, just a little bit. That's literal hellfire and brimstone there. And if reading a passage like that doesn't make you at least a little uncomfortable, I think we might have to have a conversation about compassion. Because even if you believe that Christians are saved by faith, and so we don't have to worry about all that stuff, the thought of anyone else, even our own worst enemies, being thrown into a lake of fire should really unsettle us. Because cowards, the faithless, murderers, fornicators, all the rest, as followers of Jesus, we're commanded to love them too. And this is not the only vision of judgment like this in our Bible. Scripture's loaded with this stuff. Read the prophets. Read the warnings in the Torah about what will happen to God's own people if they break the covenant. Read Jesus' words about separating the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. There are some very visceral, disturbing visions of judgment in our Bibles. Where's the good news in all of that? I think that part of the problem with how we read and apply a lot of these passages, <clears throat> we've been given a very punitive understanding of judgment. In our culture and in our society today, judgment's often retributive. We use our legal system not so much to right wrongs as to punish people who do wrong. If you steal something, you pay a fine. If you hurt somebody, you go to jail. If you kill somebody, we kill you. Our, imagines have been, our imaginations have been conditioned to think about judgment in terms of punishment. But that's actually a really narrow view of judgment. And the Bible thankfully, has a lot more to say about judgment than that. And that brings me to the passage we're looking at for today, Psalm 82. This is a really wild psalm. Um, in my Bible, it's titled, A Plea for Justice. The psalmist imagines God presiding over this council made up of all the other gods, the gods of Israel's neighbors. Back then, the gods of the nations had names like Baal, Asherah, Marduk, all these divine figures that pop up in the Old Testament, duking it out with Israel's God. We don't give our names gods like that today. 
Um, if we were to name our gods, the gods of our age, we might use names like money, power, corruption, fame, the nation state. Those might be the gods of our age. <clears throat> and in this psalm, Israel's God declares judgment on these other divine figures. And here's what God has to say beginning in verse 2. Remember, God is talking to these other gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you will die like mortals and fall like any prince. And then the psalm ends with the psalmist declaring, Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. This is a very different view of judgment than what we're used to. We think about judgment in terms of punishment, in terms of bad news. This is judgment that comes as good news. This is judgment in the form of God establishing justice, saving the weak and the orphan, the lowly and the destitute. Our Bibles are filled with examples of people crying out to God and begging for this kind of judgment, imploring the creator of the universe to judge the earth rightly and set things right. Because when you're marginalized, when you're oppressed, when you've been denied justice, well, then the idea of judgment, of God coming to set things right, that comes as very good news. We talked about retributive justice a few minutes ago. This is restorative justice. This is a form of judgment that's not so much about settling the score as setting things right. God enters into our broken universe and put thing, puts things back to the way they're supposed to be. Think about if you've ever been wronged or hurt or victimized. How much you longed for justice. Not revenge, but restitution. Not to destroy the people who hurt you and get even, but a judgment that restores you and sets things right. That's restorative justice. That's the kind of judgment that should come as good news. So we have restorative justice and retributive justice. Justice in the form of God restoring people and communities, making things right, and justice in the form of God throwing people into a lake of fire. We find both of those in our Bibles. If you're looking to, like, cherry-pick a verse to back up your preferred, preferred method of violence, you'll find plenty of options in the Bible. So what do we do when confronted with these two very different approaches to judgment in our Bibles? This is an interpretive question. And the standard Christian response is to try to make it all fit somehow. Christians, we aren't very good at handling tension. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. We can't stand having things out of place. There can be no contradictions, no loose ends, no gray areas. 
So when we come upon something like the existence of both restorative justice and retributive justice in the Bible, we try to make it all fit somehow. Downplay the tension, ignore it, make it go away. Our Jewish friends approach the Bible a lot differently. There's this old saying that where you have six rabbis, you'll find 12 opinions. I've used that quote a few times in here. I'm a big fan. Jewish scholars and Jewish Bible teachers love tension. They love exploring the nuances and the different perspectives on display in our Bibles. Or really in their Bibles, right? Because Jews wrote like 95% of the Bible. It's good for us to remember that. You see this difference if you compare a Christian study Bible with a Jewish study Bible. Has anyone here ever seen a Christian study Bible? Some of you. Not enough of you. That makes me very sad. Who's seen a Christian study Bible? There's there's some more hands. Excellent. I have a picture right here of a Christian study Bible. Standard approach in a a Christian study Bible is the top, like, two-thirds of the page is, is Scripture. That's the text. And then the bottom third of the page is commentary. It's the notes kind of telling you what everything up top means. People have seen this before, right? I want to make sure this isn't totally new. Okay, good. Jewish study Bibles are a bit different. I have a picture here of a Jewish study Bible. Jewish study Bibles are arranged a bit differently. You're going to notice the scripture runs through the middle of the page. And then the commentaries are on the side. There's like a left-hand sidebar and a right-hand sidebar. And they disagree. There's two sets of commentary, one on the left, one on the right, that tend to run in most Jewish study Bibles throughout the entire Bible as you're going through it. They disagree with each other. They debate with each other. They push back and forth on each other. This is a much more traditional approach to scripture than what Christians are used to. And the standard approach in Judaism or in parts of Judaism, when you encounter tension in the Bible, what the rabbis would typically do is interpret one perspective in light of the other. Interpret one perspective in light of the other. Let me explain what that means. Say you've got two camps. The rabbinical approach is to situate yourself in one camp and then read the other passages through that perspective and see where it leads you. So you could, like, situate yourself in the retributive stuff and read all the restorative justice through retribution. You could do that, and it would probably lead you into some dark places. Or you could situate yourself in the restorative passages and interpret all the retributive things through that. If you've ever read the New Testament, this is what people like Jesus, Paul, and the early church leaders do. They are always interpreting one set of scriptures in light of another, because they were Jewish, which comes as news to some of us sometimes. And here's the thing that I find very instructive. Every time Jesus is confronted with the condemnatory, punitive, retributive stuff in his tradition, he almost always interprets it through a lens of restorative justice. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Retributive justice. 
But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Retributive justice. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, for then you will be children of your Father in heaven. Time and time again, Jesus takes the retributive stuff, judgment as punishment, and he turns it toward restoration. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Opt out of the cycles of violence that dominate this world and be reconciled. Think about when the crowd approaches Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery. That's a pretty famous story. The law could not be clearer. Scripture could not be clearer on what you do when you catch someone in adultery. You stone them. Case closed. The Bible tells me so. But what does Jesus say? Let whoever is without sin cast the first stone. Then once the crowd has dispersed, Jesus restores the woman, refusing to condemn her and inviting her to go and sin no more. That's restoration. The good news about judgment is that God is coming to set things right. The brokenness, evil, suffering, violence of our world is not going to last. All of that has been condemned through the resurrection of Jesus. But that still leaves us with one burning question, literally. That's a pun. You you don't have to laugh. It's just to humor me. What about hell? What about the lake of fire and the second death? Here again, I think Jesus' approach is really instructive. Jesus actually talks about hell a lot. Jesus talks about hell, most of the references in the Bible to hell are from Jesus. But when Jesus talks about hell, he uses the word Gehenna. Let me hear you all say Gehenna. Excellent pronunciation, very good. Gehenna is a literal place. It's an actual place. It's the Greek name for the Hinnom Valley, which is a valley that runs south of Jerusalem. I actually have a map. It's, well, it's more of an aerial picture of present-day Jerusalem. It's kind of tough to get your bearings, but you've got Mount Zion right about there. Um, The golden dot up here is the Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque that is where the temple was in Jesus' day. You've got the Kidron Valley next to that, the Mount of Olives across there. And running all along the bottom of this picture is the Hinnom Valley, what in Jesus' day was called Gehenna. And Gehenna, at the time of Jesus, was widely seen as a cursed place. You did not want to end up in Gehenna. In Old Testament times, um, Gehenna was a center for cultic worship. Some of the evil kings of Israel would um, set up um, idols there. There are instances of child sacrifice that happened in Gehenna recorded in the Old Testament. We're talking really dark stuff. And by the time of Jesus, Gehenna had been turned into a garbage dump. It's where the people of Jerusalem took all their trash to be burned. There were piles of garbage lining the entire valley, always on fire, fire that never went out. 
The smell of rot, decay, and burning trash filled the valley. It would have been miserable to walk through. Gehenna is where poor people would go to, to kind of look for food or to look for something useful among what the other people had thrown away. Gehenna was also a frequent hideout for criminals, fugitives, lepers, anyone that society had deemed unclean or unwanted. You ended up in Gehenna. If you were a person of any importance, any respect at all, you wouldn't be caught dead in Gehenna. And Gehenna had another kind of negative connotation. It was in the south. And whenever Jerusalem was invaded, which happened from time to time in the ancient world, the invaders tended to come from the north. So the survivors, the people who would flee, lose everything, and have to run for their lives to escape, they had to go through Gehenna. They literally went through hell. That's what happened when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. That's what happened when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 40 years after the time of Christ. You did not want to end up in Gehenna. That's the word Jesus uses that gets translated hell in our Bibles. And it's very interesting. Jesus almost never invokes Gehenna when he's talking to unbelievers to outsiders, to people outside the faith. We don't see examples of Jesus using Gehenna to scare people into the religion, the way some Christians I've heard do. When Jesus invokes Gehenna, he's almost always talking to the spiritual insiders, people like us, religious people, respected people, church-going people, the spiritual insiders of the day. That's who Jesus warns about Gehenna. And the warning couldn't be any clearer. You think you're so righteous. You think you're in. You've allied yourselves with tyrants. And you think that God's made you the gatekeepers, the ones who get to determine who's in and who's out. But you're headed straight for Gehenna. If you continue to ally yourselves with the powers that be, exclude others and elevate yourself, you might end up in Gehenna. There is an exclusion in the midst of this embrace. There are evils that exist in our world that will have no place in the new world God is creating. Greed, hatred, exploitation, violence, murder, the gods of this age. For those who are the victims of those realities, for those who are crying out to God to render a verdict, deliverance is coming. That's the good news about judgment. But for any of us, and I include myself in this group, who are maybe a little too comfortable with the world as it is, 
For those of us who are maybe a bit too invested in maintaining the status quo, those of us who are complicit in the evils it promotes, well, we really need to take heart. Because God really is coming to make all things new. And those realities do not belong. And if we aren't careful, the evils we turn a blind eye to just might lead us to Gehenna. Let's pray. God of justice, God of hope, empower us to join in the plea of the psalmist. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all of the nations belong to you. Help us to see and receive the good news about judgment, Lord. Empower us to participate in your movement of liberating the poor, overturning systems of violence and hate, and setting things right. Open our eyes to see the ways that we are complicit in the suffering of others. Give us the grace to embrace your goodness, your mercy, and your love. Do not lead us into Gehenna, Lord, but deliver us from evil. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.